There are two basic ways to read the Bible for Christians. One is to read the Bible the way that we often find ourselves falling into the habit of doing, and that is the habit of treating it like it is a habit, of coming to the Bible to read it to check a box or because we know we should read the Bible, and so our eyes scan down the page And particularly when we come to familiar passages, familiar stories, ones that we have known perhaps since we were children or have heard preached many times, our eyes can tend to glaze over and we read over the passage and we say, I'm familiar here. But the second way to read the Bible is the way that all of us should read the Bible. And that is of a student of the Bible. Now, as a student, I must confess, I was very transactional. I don't know what you were as a student. You probably were a better student than I was. I would oftentimes approach a class with simply the question, how can I get a good grade here? And I just wanted to get a good grade, and I didn't really care about much more than that. And I realized as I look back, and what I want to pass on to my children, is that the much better way to be a student is to be a curious student. A student who loves not just to get a good grade, but who loves to learn. And there's a certain curiosity that someone who loves to learn approaches subjects, and it's exactly the way that we should approach the Bible. Now, why do I start here? It's because this morning we are confronted in just our movement through the book of Mark together, a very familiar story. I suspect that that most of us, at least maybe not all of us, but most of us are familiar with the story of Jesus being tempted by the devil, of being in the wilderness, being without food and water for an extended period of time, 40 days. It was a miraculous fast. And of having these bombarding of temptation from the devil, an appeal to his human desires, turn those stones into bread and you'll have food to satisfy your hunger. Of appealing to human pride by saying, look at all of these areas, look at all of these these kingdoms that are around. They can be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. Appealing to the vanity of of, of, of our human existence by saying, go up to the top of the temple and jump down, and you'll be miraculously caught by angels, and what a great victory it will be for you. We're likely familiar with that story. But sometimes, as I said, when we're familiar with the story, we miss out really truly what its greatest implications are for us, what the Holy Spirit is really trying to teach us. And so I invite you to turn to Mark 1 and verse number 12. Because where we are in the Bible is important. This is one of the benefits of preaching through the Bible sequentially in terms of a book because we come into the context of the story in a way that we might not ordinarily come. And last week as we talked about Jesus is coming up out of the water. He's coming up out of the water. The heavens are opening. The Holy Spirit like a dove is coming down to, to rest on him. And what does God the Father say? You're my beloved son. I'm well pleased with you. Does it get much better than that? Is there much higher of a mountaintop experience than for God himself to thunder out of heaven toward his son and say, you're my beloved son, I'm pleased with you? I don't think so. 
But then notice what immediately comes after in verse number 12. Verse 12 begins, and immediately. Immediately after this, Mark loves to give us these details as to time. He loves to use this word immediately uh, to tell us, have a sense of, of the time that's involved. Immediately after coming up out of the water, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Now we need to understand something about this, the Greek that is used here. This word, this idea for drives him is the idea of throwing something. It's a violent word. In fact, the next time we see this Greek word used in Mark chapter 1 is when it's said that Jesus is casting out a demon. Think of the violence of a demon being cast out by someone. And that same picture, that same word is used to say that the Spirit takes Jesus as, as if he were still dripping wet coming out of his baptism and throws him, drives him into the wilderness. In other words, what we see here is that Jesus' um, uh, temptation in the wilderness was not random. It was not haphazard. It was intentional, and it was God who sent him there, who drove him there, who led him there to confront the devil. And when we do that, when we recognize that, we realize that Jesus had an appointment. Jesus had an appointment that was central to his ministry, that was central to his mission. And when we come at this passage like a student with curiosity, why did the Spirit drive him into the wilderness? Why was this necessary for him to have an appointment with the devil? I think these two short verses are going to come alive for us and open up a, a way of understanding this passage. Not only that I hope will be helpful to us, but that will be very meaningful to us at Christmas. This is a Christmas passage. It may not seem like one, but it ties into exactly the mission that Jesus came to accomplish at Christmas. So what I want to do is just ask three questions of this text. Come at it like a student, curious to learn on this familiar story. And the first question we'll ask is who this appointment was with. Who was Jesus meeting up with in the wilderness that the Spirit drove him, threw him, led him to be there? Notice again in verse 12, And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan. Now again, Satan is some, someone we have, I trust, familiarity with. The very word Satan in our Bible means adversary. He is an enemy by his very name. And he is your enemy and he is my enemy. Now, today sometimes we downplay, in, at least in our culture, the existence or the nature of Satan, but the Bible doesn't. And really, frankly, we have to be very aware of who the devil is and what his devices for us are. I remember uh, when I was in law school, I had a class with a, a very prominent legal philosopher that was there, and he taught a class on a particular part of legal history. And I remember him telling me after class one day, he said, these atheists, he himself was a somewhat secular Jew, but he said, these atheists, he said, they are utterly ignorant of history. He said, you cannot study history and come to the conclusion that there is no God. You can't do it. 
And what I would say is I would take it one step further. I would say you cannot study history and believe there's no such thing as a devil, as Satan. You cannot look at the atrocities that human beings have been capable of. You cannot look at all of the evil that has entered into our world and that is still being perpetrated in our world today and say there is not a very hostile enemy of God and of what he created in this world. There is a devil. He is real and he is truly out to harm us in his opposition to God. Well, just very briefly, what is this adversary? Who is he and what is he all about? There are many ways we could look at this scripturally, but just one, uh, just one, a couple things I want to raise is who he is to those who are not believers, who are not Christians, those who are not in Jesus Christ by virtue of his death and resurrection on the cross. To them, Satan is a master. He is a slave owner. The Bible describes in 2 Timothy 2 as Satan as being someone who holds people captive at his will. And the idea here, Ephesians 2 paints this picture of Satan who is called the God of this world, the one who is in a sense the ruler of this world, as being the one who holds people under his sway, who holds their power as a slave owner. He has them entirely captive. Now maybe you would say, well, that makes sense to me for the person who was just given over to really bad sin the person who is really acting wickedly. I can understand how that person is given over to Satan, is a a slave of his. But what about all the good moral people who aren't Christians? How could we say that they are in captivity to Satan? And I would simply say this. Revelation 12 calls, um, uh, says that Satan is the deceiver of the entire world. He's a deceiver And friends, one of the captivities that we need to understand just as importantly as the captivity to give over to our sin is the the captivity to the deception of self-righteousness. Because all over this world today, there are people who say, I'm a good person, I'm a moral person, I am generally an upstanding person, I do what's right, and as a result they say, I don't need Jesus. I don't need to be saved. I'm not in bondage to anything. And the problem is the deception of their self-righteousness is in fact often more powerful than the deception of someone who's given over entirely to the most grievous sins we could think of. In fact, think about Jesus himself. Who were the ones that were most likely to accept Jesus when he was here on earth? Those ones who are the good, moral, upstanding people or those who were the honest, out-and-out sinners? The honest, out-and-out sinners because it was them who realized, I am in great need of salvation. I am in great need of deliverance. It was the good, moral, upstanding people, the religious elites of the day who said, I don't need Jesus. Why would I need that carpenter from Nazareth? I am already in God's plan by virtue of my own lived righteousness. And so do not think that just because someone is not living a life of complete dissolution, of complete disrepair and wickedness that you would say, well, that person must not be in captivity of Satan. No, they may be in an even greater captivity. The deception to believe that they have no need of the salvation that comes only in Jesus Christ. So to these 
to those who do not know the power of Jesus Christ, who have not been born again, the Satan is a master. He is a slave owner. But what about to those who do know the power of Jesus Christ, who have been born again? The Bible depicts Satan as a tempter. And this arises in a variety of different ways. In Ephesians 6, he's presented like a a military general who has wiles or strategies, schemes to oppose God and his people. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he's depicted as a, a roaring lion, someone who tries to intimidate and bring fear into the hearts of God's people. We remember Jesus telling Peter, that Peter, Satan, desires to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to test your faith. He wants to try and see whether you really are going to follow Jesus, whether you really are going to walk your life by faith. And if we are a Christian, every single one of us not only have experienced the temptation of the evil one, but continue to experience his strategies and his schemes. He is a master, a slave owner to some. He is a tempter to others. But do you know what else he is to the Christian? He is an accuser. This is what Revelation 12 tells us. He is the accuser of the brethren, of all the Christians, because he accuses them before God day and night. Just like he accused Job before God, righteous Job, and sought to to find fault in him. So in each one of us, he is an accuser. He's like that person, if you ever played sports, that person who didn't only beat you, but then taunted you. The person who didn't only prevail over you, but then talk trash to let you know how badly he had defeated you. I don't know if any of you were ever in sports. That kind of person was the one who drove me up a wall. We all want to wipe the smile off that guy's face. And this is the devil. He trips you up and then he taunts you. He makes you stumble or he leads you to the point of sin. And then he accuses you and says, you're a failure. You'll never get better. You'll never get victory over that sin. You'll never be worthwhile in your Christian life. He is an accuser. This is the opponent. It's the enemy. It's the adversary of every single one of us. Whether we are in Christ, whether we've been born again, or whether we haven't been. This is the one that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to see. Jesus had an appointment, a divinely appointed time to meet up with this adversary. The second question we should ask, not just who Jesus met up with, but secondly, where did he meet? We'll look back again to Mark chapter one. And immediately the spirit drives him into the wilderness. Now, that idea of a wilderness, the wilderness that we're familiar with in Minnesotans is probably the boundary waters. That's wilderness. That's not wilderness like, This was wilderness. This would have been more like a desert, a wild area. But it has the same kind of idea. What is a wilderness? What makes a wilderness a wilderness? No people. That's what makes it a wilderness. That's why it's wild. It's not inhabited. The very idea of the Greek that's used here has the idea of being alone, deserted, So Jesus goes into a literally a lonely place, a deserted place. And you see, why why is this important? Well, it's important when we recognize what Jesus was there for his appointment with. 
his appointment was literally to be tempted of the devil. This is what our scripture says. He was tempted of Satan. Satan had a particular time with him when he brought all of his schemes, strategies, and wiles to bear against Jesus Christ. He sought to cause Jesus to sin. Well, and we already know what happened. We already know the end story, don't we? Jesus didn't sin. He resisted him. In fact, we read elsewhere in Luke chapter 4 that when, when Jesus resisted his last temptation, the devil just left. He just walked away but with the tail between his legs because Jesus had triumphed. You say, well, why does it matter then that Jesus went into the wilderness? Well, think about your own life. Have you ever been in a particular period of temptation and you've reached out to a Christian friend and you said, will you pray for me? I'm having the hardest time. I feel like I'm just under attack by the devil. And that person has said, let's pray right now. Let's pray. And they've prayed and you felt strengthened. You said, thank you, I needed that. Or you've come around the people of God and you've heard a sermon or you've sung a, a particular hymn and it ministered to you particularly in a way the devil was, was testing you at that moment and you received victory from it. In other words, our victory against the devil is a corporate thing. That's one of the reasons it's so important to be firmly planted in a local church to be surrounding ourselves with Christians because we need each other in our temptations that the devil brings against us. Notice what Jesus, where Jesus was. He was isolated from people. There was no one that he was going to reach out in a human form and say, pray for me, I'm going through a real, really difficult period of temptation. He was literally by himself. And not only that, look what also Mark makes clear. He was tempted of Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, the wild animals. Now, the other gospel writers don't teach us this detail. They don't give us this detail. This is just Mark. But I want to, again, make clear, there are no random words in the Bible. Everything that's in the Bible, the Spirit wants to be there for a particular reason. So why does Mark tell us that he was with the wild animals? Well, if you were in a lonesome place... For 40 days and for 40 nights, how would you like to be surrounded by only wild animals? How would you like to be in a place where you were surrounded truly by hostile animals? All of us are confronted with a natural fear of the wild animal, of the nature, of what we cannot control. Jesus himself was subject to that. He was with them. He was surrounded by them in a place where he had no other friend or helper in a human sense. He was entirely alone. Now again, put yourself in that situation. Not only are these his surroundings, not only are the, 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 the ones that are surrounding him are wild animals that could potentially harm him, we see in, in the other passages, in the other Gospels, that Jesus was without food and without water for 40 days. He was utterly exhausted and utterly emaciated. Now just again, 40 days without food. Some of us get really hangry, hungry, angry, when we're without food for 40 minutes, much less 40 hours, much less 40 days, 40 days. That is nearly six weeks, friends. 
I just want to step back and make that really clear. If you went back to Thanksgiving and you went back to the Monday before Thanksgiving, Monday before Thanksgiving, your 40-day fast would be ending this Saturday on New Year's Day. I want you to imagine going without food from before Thanksgiving to New Year's Day. That would be a rough Christmas for me. I'm just going to be really honest. But that's what Jesus experienced. Now put yourself again in his position. He is going up against the greatest enemy to all of us, the devil, the opponent of God and of all his works. He has not eaten in 40 days. He is physically weak and emaciated. He is surrounded by the natural fear of wild animals because he's entirely exposed to the elements and to nature. And he is in a wilderness where he has no one to comfort and encourage and support him from a human perspective. And he is facing the temptations of Satan for 40 days. Now, notice here, sometimes we only think about the last three temptations that Jesus experienced when we read the other Gospels. Mark 1 suggests that he was being tempted by the devil this entire time. 40 days of intense spiritual opposition and temptation. That is what our Savior went through. And that leads me to the last question I want us to ask as students of the Bible this morning. Not just who he faced, not just where he was, the kind of surroundings he faced, but finally, why? Why did the Spirit of God drive him there? Why was it a part of his appointed mission on earth to face up the devil and to do it under these intolerable circumstances? Well, let's go back to answering that question to what we saw last week. We asked the same question, why was Jesus baptized? He wasn't a sinner. He didn't need to repent or participate in any baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He was greater than John the Baptist. He didn't need to go do it to submit to some greater spiritual leader. Why did he do it? Because Jesus' mission on earth was to come to identify with sinners and when sinners came to the water of baptism in the Jordan River and were publicly confessing their sins and saying, I need to get right with God. I need the repentance and the forgiveness that can only come through him. Jesus came and stepped into their shoes and said, I'm getting baptized too. And in his humble submission, God the Father beamed at him and said, you are my beloved son. I'm well pleased with your humble submission, with your identification with sinners. That's why Jesus got baptized. So why did he go into the wilderness? He did it to identify with you and me. He did it because he needed to experience all the worst of the temptations that you and I experience. Have you ever been alone in your temptation of the devil? Have you ever felt entirely isolated? Jesus has too. Have you ever been, uh, been without? Whatever kind of bodily need that all of us have, have you ever been entirely without it in your temptation? Jesus has too. Have you ever had the experience of a temptation toward your pride, toward your vanity, toward the, the greed or the kind of, of experience that all of us can have when it comes to money, our own self-centeredness tested? So has 
Jesus, not because he had any internal lust, any internal craving, but based on these external temptations that the devil brought into his life. Jesus was tempted, the Bible said, in every point like we are, but without sin. And do you know what that means? The Bible says that because he was tempted in every way like we are, he is the one that we can go to when we're being tempted because he can help us, because he knows what we are going through, because he can be a merciful high priest, the Bible says, because he has experienced everything that you are experiencing now, and he did it without sin. Again, friends, I want you to think about this. Our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, met the devil. They did it in a garden, a garden where they had everything they could ask for, They had the finest fruit, the finest food that they could have. They had each other's companionship to encourage each other. They had a walk with God in open communion with him. And our ancestors in that glorious garden met up with Satan and fell. And then the second Adam came. And he met up with the devil and it wasn't in a garden. It wasn't with physical companionship. It wasn't with the best and the most beautiful what God could provide. It was in a wilderness fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, surrounded by the wild beasts, utterly emaciated and alone. And unlike the first Adam, the second Adam emerged entirely victorious. That is what Jesus came to do, to identify with us as sinners, but not just to identify, to prevail. Not just to stand in our shoes, but to walk in those shoes, to have complete victory over the devil and his power. And this, my friends, is exactly why this is a Christmas story. I want us to turn in our Bibles for just a moment to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. You can find the book of 1 John if you go to the end of your Bible in Revelation and then work back just a couple of books to 1 John. I want us to look at verse number 8. John is describing for us why Jesus came. And I want us to see here in verse number 8, if you look down at the second half of that verse, John says very simply, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, was revealed. When was the Son of God revealed? At Christmas? In a manger? This is why he came to earth. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that he might destroy the works of the devil Why do we have a Christmas? Because the Son of God entered into our humanity to destroy the works of God's enemy. Again, think about this picture. The devil is working. He is always at work. He's building things. He's constructing things. He's knocking things down. He is at work. And Jesus is methodically going by his works and he's destroying them. He's destroying the works of the devil. And that is what we celebrate at Christmas. So what better remembrance is there at Christmas 
of the time when the second Adam went into a wilderness to square off with that devil, to experience the worst of all his temptations, of all his strategies and schemes, and to emerge completely victorious over them. Why did the Spirit drive him into the wilderness? Because in order for Jesus to live his life as the victorious conqueror of sin for all of us, he had to conquer the devil personally. Immediately after his baptism, he goes out into the wilderness and there he is to prevail against the devil. And what happens immediately after he comes back? When he comes back from conquering the devil, from defeating him personally, now he is thrust out into ministry. Now he goes to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now he goes to cast out devils. Now he goes to call people to repentance from sin. Why? As the conquering son who had already emerged victorious himself. And friends, this great victory that Jesus wrought was ultimately fulfilled in the cross. When the Bible says that on that cross, not only did he win a victory over Satan, but he made a show of them. He made a public spectacle of them. He dragged them behind him like a conquering general who has all the captives that he has won. He made a public spectacle when he prevailed over Satan on the cross and in his resurrection. Why? Why was Jesus driven out? Not only to identify with us, but to prevail for us. And this is ultimately where I want to challenge each one of us today. Because there are three takeaways for, for me in this that are ultimately unavoidable. And I want to encourage you with each one of these today. Here's the first reason I think that we need to meditate on this truth today, especially at Christmas. It's to first recognize what Jesus came to do for all of us. What did he come to do? We just read about it. He came to destroy the works of the devil, which tells me this. It tells me that my DNA my mission statement needs to be like his. To destroy the works of the devil wherever I see them. And do you know, friends, Christians have been the ones who throughout history have been the ones to be pointed at the works of the devil and seeking to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to destroy them? I just got an email recently from a woman at the, the, the New Life Family Center. Some of you may have heard of it. It's going to be moving into a building right down the street from us. And she's looking to meet up and find ways that we can work together or um, be an encouragement to each other. New Life Family Center is a, a, a wonderful organization, a Christian organization that is seeking to provide pregnancy counseling for those who are contemplating abortions and resources, it's seeking to provide adoptions for people who are, who, are, uh, who are having unplanned pregnancies or other things. And as well, it is also providing counseling for women who have chosen to have abortions and are suffering the very difficult effects of doing so. Do you know what New Life Family Services is doing? They're seeking to destroy the works of the devil. And they're doing it because of their Christian testimony. Those are the kind of people that we should be saying, I'm with you. 
do you know that this Phillips neighborhood where we are today is either the worst or one of the very worst in our entire state in the, in the, in the area of human trafficking? If we, had, if we knew even a half of the horrors that are facing our teenagers in this neighborhood, our immigrants in this neighborhood, those who are economically and socially vulnerable in the way of sex, of sex trafficking, we would be utterly horrified. And do you know, friends, who was on the front lines of opposing human trafficking wherever it is? Christians. Why? Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And so Christians should too. Do you know, just even historically, one of the stories that has not been told nearly enough is the extent to which the second great awakening, this great revival that swept through America in the 1800s, changed our cities and our communities. Bars started closing up. Um, uh, places of ill repute, houses of ill repute, prostitution started going out of business. Why? Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And Christians decided that they needed to follow him in that. In fact, I wrote a paper about this in law school. One story, again, that has not been told is the extent that the Second Great Awakening spurred the abolition movement in our country that ultimately defeated slavery here. Who were the ones on the front lines opposing the practice of slavery? Christians, many of whom had been fired by the Second Great Awakening of getting right with God in revival. Why? Because Jesus came to defeat the works, to destroy the works of the devil, and Christians got on the front lines. And the simple point is this, friends. In this community and all over this state, the devil is at work. He is active. And Christians, in whatever way we've been called, we are called to aim our sights at destroying his works. Are there people opposing the spread and the incredible effects, negative effects that pornography has had on our society? Christians should be on the front lines. They should be seeking to destroy those works. Are there those who are seeking to provide counseling to those who are being told today that the way God has made them in terms of their sexual identity or gender identity is God's plan for their life and ultimately they will find their joy in that and to turn away from the confusion that is destroying so many of our young people and their physical body scars physically and mentally and emotionally that our society is encouraging our young people to take on? Christians should be on those front lines. They should be seeking to destroy the works of the devil as Christ's hands and feet in this world. And I want to encourage you, particularly at this Christmas season, when you recognize what Jesus came to do, are you able to say, my hand is up? Maybe for some of us that looks like writing a check. Maybe for some of us that looks like volunteering. Maybe for some of us that looks like being a gospel witness in our neighborhood or on our community in a different way than we've done before. But my first encouragement to you is if Jesus met up with the devil and defeated him, he wants you to confront the works of the devil and seek his power to, to destroy them as well. Here's the second encouragement for us. I want us to see not just why Jesus came, but when he met up with the devil, the timing of what he did. Because the simple point about what Jesus, Jesus was thrust out to oppose the works of the devil, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to call the sinners to repentance. All of that are wonderful works for us to be doing. But do you know what he did first before he was thrust out? He defeated the devil personally. 
And the simple point is this. If we want to be used of God in a powerful way to destroy the works of the devil, do you know where it needs to start? Me. Ourselves. If I want to see my simple talents used to see others come to victory in Jesus Christ, I need to be the one seeing the victory in my own life. That was the the route that Jesus took. First to confront the devil personally and then to be shot out of a cannon empowered by the Holy Spirit to seek to deliver him, to seek to deliver others from the power of Satan. Do you know Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 3? He says if any of you wants to be a church leader in church leadership, he said one of the great dangers that you're going to run into is that you fall into reproach and the snare of the devil, the trap of the devil. He said so you better have people who are mature who are ready to be in that position. Why? Because if I don't have victory in my own life, how can I call others to victory? Do I mean that means I need to be perfect? No. Does that mean I need to have flawless victory over the devil in my own life? No. It simply means this. I better have my focus set on what the devil is trying to do in my own life and seeking the victory that comes only through Jesus Christ. You know, friends, as we come to this year end, where our minds naturally go back to what's happened in the year ahead and our minds naturally go forward to what God wants in the year ahead. I just want to ask you this question. Where are you going to need to have an appointment with the devil this upcoming year? Where is some patterns and habits of sin in your life and mine that need to be confronted? What areas and what habits have I worked into my life that I know, I know, are of the devil, they're not of the Lord. And I need to find victory in that area if I'm going to be his tool to destroy the works of the devil and the lives of others. May we have a fresh perspective on that today as we see our Savior go into the wilderness to conquer. May we each be, have a new motivation, a new desire to see the same. And one more thing. We've said that Jesus came to identify with us. He came to prevail over sin for us. And I want us to close this morning just simply meditating on the example that Jesus Christ came to be for you. Maybe some of you are still dealing with the thought, I don't know that I can prevail over that sin. I don't know if I can get victory over that temptation. I've tried over and over and over and over again. Well, friends, do you know what changes everything? When you realize that the exact same power that Jesus had to defeat all of these temptations is yours When you realize that Jesus Christ's salvation means that, as Paul said in Galatians 2, Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Jesus came to defeat the devil so that you could too. Jesus came to win over the devil so that you do not have to lose. Jesus came to triumph so that you could join in his triumph. And that tells me there is not one sin that you can't conquer by God's grace. There is not one besetting habit that you cannot gain victory in by his grace in looking to him and relying on his power. You know, this is such a lie that the devil tries to sow in our lives. I remember I was doing a Bible study with a young teenager who we were picking up on our bus and we were explaining in this Bible study to him and to others what the Bible expected, what God expects from them in the area of sexual integrity and purity. That sexual expression is for one man and one woman committed to each other in marriage for life. 
And I'll never forget this young man, this teenager, looking at me and shaking his head. And he said, I can't do that. No way I can do that. The subtext was maybe you can, but I can't. And what that young man missed is sometimes what we miss. That when we just focus on the power of the temptation, on the power of the enticement, of course we're going to think it's too strong for us. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, who came and stared down that temptation and had complete victory over it, when we focus on his victory and on the power that he intends to give every single one of us to have the same, suddenly that, that temptation doesn't feel so overpowering, does it? This is why Hebrews 12 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who came to prevail so that we could prevail with him. Friends, why did Jesus come? Why did he come to have an appointment with the devil? Because not only was he identifying with us to be our help, but he was prevailing for us. And my challenge to each one of us today is first, where is the devil at work around you that God would have you be his, the, the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to destroy the works of the devil? If we're going to have that kind of effect, we need to start with ourselves of pursuing the victory that comes only through him. And if we're gonna get that victory, it's only going to come by looking to Jesus the one who has empowered us with his Holy Spirit to live our Christian life the way that he came to give us. I hope, friends, that in this Christmas season, you and I each will have a new focus and a new motive to follow in the steps of Christ and destroy the works of the devil. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the example of our savior Jesus thank you father that there is no temptation that is too powerful for us because by the life of the of the of Jesus Christ given to us by the Holy Spirit we have all the power we need to live in victory the victory that Jesus came to give and I pray father that your people here would be encouraged and challenged to follow in the steps of our Savior.